Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation. Today we have Charles McElwee. He's an assistant editor at SUNY Journal. He's a regular contributor to the American Conservative. And uh, I have him on because an article he wrote in the last issue of City Journal passed my desk. And that's going to be the subject of our conversation today. The battle's called, uh, sorry, the article is called The Battle for Rust Belt Catholicism. Uh, thank you, Charles, for joining us. Thank you for having me on. All right, let, let's get to definitions. What is Rust Belt Catholicism? So Rust Belt Catholicism really applies to the post-industrial cities and towns that make up, I would argue, uh, Massachusetts, like cities like Fall River, all the way through uh, parts of New York, North Jersey, into Pennsylvania, Ohio, and the upper Midwest. And mm -hmm. these are the cities and towns that really fueled our industrial growth. They, they, they shaped our nation's economic future in the mid to late 19th century. And they were really the magnet for a, this ethnic composition of um, immigrants during that time who came and settled in these cities, worked in mines and worked in mill towns, and they built parishes that shaped the urban fabric of these regions. So when you visit uh, cities and towns throughout the Rust Belt, one of the most defining features, of course, are the spires of, of the churches, cathedral-like. Oftentimes when you are in some of these smaller towns outside Pittsburgh or uh, Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, you see the the spires, the Gothic architecture, and if it's the Eastern Rite, oftentimes the onion domes of Ukrainian Byzantine Catholic churches. And these were all built by the immigrant workers who served as the labor force for mines and mills and, and, and steel mills. And really, they created this form of Catholicism that was, of course, defined by their culture. So uh, Irish Catholicism, um, if you were Italian, you, you, you're right, Italian right. So, Irish. So, so the, the, the Irish, I, Italian, you mentioned Ukrainian, yes. uh, Polish? Polish, Slovak. Um, I mean, even I mean, in my family's hometown, Hazleton, Pennsylvania, Trollian Catholic, which would be uh, Trollians or in northern Italy, mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, Ger essentially German-speaking Italians. Mm -hmm. And this was something you would classify as distinct? It is distinct because they created these neighborhoods that revolved around the church. That was the processing station for their entry into America. I mean, they were oftentimes assimilated by the labor movement. So if you worked in the mine, you were working with Irish, Italian, German, Eastern European, and you would go home to your neighborhoods and each neighborhood revolved around these Catholic parishes. So it, it was twofold. You, you were, um, when you lived in the Rust Belt, you were assimilated by your um, labor force, but then you also preserved your culture through your parish. And it created this really beautiful balance in these communities and um, Catholicism served as a refuge, a spiritual one, for these communities, even in times when the factories closed and mills closed, the mines collapsed, it was a, a, a source of spiritual comfort 
and one that preserved their culture despite the trials of their regions. What is the battle going on that you mentioned here? Well, the, the problem is uh, these churches are closing, and and the pro and of course the child abuse, the, the sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic Church are a major factor in this. So last year, of course, the Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro released a report, a grand jury report, uh, overviewing 70 years of abuse, recounting unspeakable, horrific acts, criminal acts, uh, cover-ups among bishops, and it just created this profound sense of disillusionment in, in communities that are already struggling, uh, dealing with uh, rising crime, mass blight, closed factories, or, or, or in employers that pay stagnant wages, uh, cities and towns dealing with profound demographic change. So it was just a, a, a terrible development for these communities, uh, one that people knew or at least suspected for decades. So people were aware of abusive priests or, or authoritarian you, priests. Do you mean, do you mean the, 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 the laity or the higher-ups? The la well, the laity, the higher-ups, of course, knew. And then I, I, I note that yeah. in my article as I uh, recount the grand jury report. But people in, in these parishes, not all the time, but oftentimes knew as well. And it just confirmed, the report was just this overwhelming confirmation of what they already knew. But so, uh, sometimes they learned other horrific stories that they never knew about priests who served their parishes. And it just created this profound sense of disillusionment among laity. But at the same time, all these churches are closing. And it really goes back to a, a historical mistake. Uh, the, these bishops in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, let's face it, they were terrible businessmen. They opened too many churches. So just in my family's hometown in the greater Hazleton region in northeastern Pennsylvania, a, a center for anthracite coal, about 30 Catholic churches were in the area. And we're talking about an area that today I would say is 80,000 people in southern Luzerne County. But in, in Hazleton itself, there were about 15, between 15 and 20 Catholic churches um, serving six square miles and at its population peak 48,000 people. And they write down to having four Italian parishes from different regions of Italy. So when you break down parishes to that level, inevitably long-term, many will close. So, but unfortunately, the, the way the bishops handled these closures it was rather unsensitive they, or insensitive. They they, they didn't right. really appreciate the profound emotional impact this would have on, on the laity, the local you, laity. You say, quote, for active parishioners, church closures, church closures have become an emotionally devastating ritual, which they see as a betrayal of their cultural heritage. That's exactly it. And that's that sentence itself is what inspired me to write this essay. Uh, it was in the spring of 2018. I was actually living outside of Hazelson at the time, working in economic development. And there was a paper or an article in the local newspaper, the standard speaker about the closure or consolidation of 11 churches of what's called the Panther Valley, which is uh, not far from Hazelson. Uh, just these small 
call towns, uh, kind of like an ethnic belt of different churches, and it talked about how all the churches were consolidating into one, and the irony was it's a, in a devoutly Catholic area. People still go to church there. It's not like these are churches necessarily with empty pews. And I never forgot the um, one quote from the article, which was that people feel abandoned. And you, it, it recounted uh, the elderly struggling to walk up the stairs to the one church that remained open. Mm -hmm. People getting the, um, abandoned, or not abandoned, uh, stuck in snowstorms, struggling to get to this church. They, they happened to pick the most inaccessible church to remain open. And it just inspired me to think about, well, too often the church, especially in these dioceses, are, are, don't appreciate the sensitivities of their local population. I mean, it, it, were, so a lot of the, were a lot of the priests and bishops from other places? Well, yes. And may, I mean, the example I painted is uh, in the Allentown diocese. So Allentown's about 45 minutes south. But, um, and, and dioceses are typically larger. Um, so they don't always have a pulse on what's going on in some of these smaller cities and towns. I mean, just in, in Hazleton, an overwhelmingly Catholic area, the only Catholic high school was closed abruptly 15 years ago. And this was despite a school with fantastic enrollment, healthy finances, and in a school public school district that's among the worst in Pennsylvania. And well, Why did they close it? There, there's no real explanation. And there, none was ever seriously reported. And what happens is when you make when, when the diocese makes such moves, it creates this profound sense of disillusionment. People um, more or less turn turn against the church because they say, "Well, now you know my my neighborhood's collapsing. My the one thing I had in my life was the parish, the, the church where mm -hmm. where my parents, grandparents, and ancestors." went and helped build and sustain, and then that's taken away from me too. And that's the mindset that's going on. I mean, the, the, we often talk about the, the um, disillusionment caused by globalization, all these other issues driving uh, problems in the Rust Belt, but the, um, the state of Catholicism is a major factor too, since really the Rust Belt, and, and I, I quote this in the essay, is often, one author said it's really the Catholic Belt, and in this Rust Belt are many marginalized Catholics. Now, when you hear Rust Belt, you think about economic collapse and right. social deterioration, but you note in the article that the Rust Belt has actually been a pretty good, solid economic foundation for the church, yes? Exactly. So there have been studies that show that when the church remains open, it serves as a major economic force because it's providing all these services to neighborhoods and communities, whether it's soup kitchens, homeless shelters, uh, social services for the elderly, uh, all these things that people overlook, they're providing that resource to the community. It's not just to Catholics. It's to the whole, the, the whole neighborhood, the whole city or town, and that's lost when the church closes. And that's why, um, you know, Many laity today are responding to this, and what I know in the essay was uh, the formation of mass mobs, uh, which are uh, organized. It started in Buffalo, and it's uh, it, it's also common in Detroit, Cleveland, and some other mid to larger Rust Belt cities, where they organize uh, what they call mass mobs to uh, go to social media, 
bring and really recruit people to go to the church, attend a special mass in struggling parishes, and help raise money to support, save, and somehow sustain the parish and the community. Let me read one paragraph on this economic issue here from the essay. Despite the church's systemic problems, grassroots movements have emerged in the Rust Belt to repair the institution, reacquaint lapsed Catholics with their heritage, and support struggling parishes. For numerous urban neighborhoods, Catholicism is not just another fading denomination. As the Philadelphia-based Partners for Sacred Places has found, city churches have, quote, an economic halo effect. In a 2016 study, the non-sectarian organization studied 90 randomly selected congregations with older buildings in Chicago, Fort Worth, and Philadelphia. Their findings revealed that, on average, historic sacred places in urban historic neighborhoods generated over $1.7 million annually in economic impact. That's pretty good news. It's fantastic news, and it's overlooked. And that's why it's really, I, I think it's a wonderful movement among laity to somehow save these churches. And But the problem is, they're, spe- they're spectacular. They, they look like they should be in France or Germany, um, but they're physically collapsing structures. Uh, I just think of my family's uh, home parish in Hazels and St. Gabriel's. I, I, a, actually, let, let me interrupt you, Charles. W- what is your background? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up actually in Hershey, Pennsylvania, but my family is originally from about 90 minutes north uh, in Hazleton. And I spent so much time there growing up that I basically consider it my hometown. I did ultimately live there as well um, to, to work there for a period. And really, Hazleton, like many of these Rust Belt cities, it's a microcosm of all the trends going on in, in the Rust Belt, in the forces of globalization and other factors. But really, it's, it's a very Catholic community, and it, it, the, the community itself is what inspired me to write the article in addition to that newspaper article I referenced. So, but for example, the, the, the church I just mentioned, St. Gabriel's, um, magnificent structure, uh, but... And and, ser- and and serves exactly uh, the role that uh, the report mentioned from Philadelphia, that it's serving as this economic force, providing services to the neighborhood and the city, but uh, the, the, the end actually has healthy parish roles, but it's in terrible physical condition. This magnificent cathedral-like building modeled on St. Patrick's in Manhattan requires over $2 million in renovations. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's a problem that many communities are facing. There's actually just um, an article presently in the Boston Globe about a, a French Canadian or French Catholic parish in uh, Fall River. And the bishop actually agreed to turn over the building, the, the, the church itself, which was closed as a parish, but he turned over the church to the laity, the, the essentially parishioners to run it so there isn't a priest there day to day but they are running the parish raising money to save the building and have managed to hold a few masses a month to um, raise money to somehow save it so it's similar to a mass mob but it's also um, an interesting structure the first of its kind in new england that could serve as a national model the church is called saint anne's Mm -hmm. And you, you, you imply that the corrections to the mismanagement, uh, the poor business plans of the leadership uh, could be corrected 
and that it would bring more people back to church, quite simply. They, they, would, they would be attending much more often if you had, again, a, a functioning church in the community. When you close a church, people stop going. They're not necessarily going to go to the next door parish or the, 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 the parish in the next neighborhood. Hmm. They're just going to stop going to mass because they're so uh, hurt by the closure of their own family parish. So I think we need to find a way to somehow support these existing parishes to support parish roles, because that doesn't even mean that people are necessarily foregoing Catholicism. They're still praying to saints. They're still praying for loved ones. And more often than not, they're still going to Christmas and the Easter mass, but they're not going to the week to week mass because their hearts were broken by the, these often ill-advised and abrupt decisions by the diocese yeah. in, throughout the Rust Belt. And you say that the shock over the Pennsylvania report on the, on the scandals, that that did dismay and dishearten. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're absolutely disheartened. But again, I mean, th- this report uh, impacted more than anyone, I would say the baby boomer generation, because they were growing up in the 50s and 60s when these the, their parish schools and their, their parishes, they were exposed oftentimes to uh, priests who just were required a, a, an enormous amount of, of deference and were often authoritarian. So they have these scars from the schools that they attended. They re, and, and, you know, People love to joke. Oh, I, I got slapped in the wrist wrist with a ruler by a nun in my in my third grade class. But it's really not a joke. The, 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 too often, these these schools were just just sources of dysfunctional behavior on the part of the priests and nuns who instructed the students, and, and they created this long term sense of disenchantment with the church. So this report, I would argue, um, really impacted. Uh, the baby boomer generation, who I even observed, would go on social media and just express their shock. And some, you know, many still practice, many still go to church, but others have kind of had it, and they're just no longer attending. But now their parishes are closed, and they they're just completely disillusioned with the institution. What what could bring them back? I think um, these dioceses just need to be more in tune with. The laity, um, it, there needs to be a greater sensitivity to uh, in these parishes. I, I think uh, in many churches, priests are too often disconnected from their parishioners. Um, now there there are many many exceptions, but I often have conversations with people who, you know, they turn to the priest in their local parish and whichever Rust Belt community, and they're having a trial in life. Um, employment problems, family strife, uh, financial duress, really anything. And th- they turn to the priest uh, for advice but, or, or, or just comfort, and it, it kind of falls flat. And I think there just needs to be a greater connection between the, the priest and, and the laity made these parishes and the diocese in many uh, regions of the Rust Belt need to be more in tune with the consequences of when they close churches. I mean, this was even acknowledged 
by the Boston Archdiocese in, in the mid to late 2000s. They realized that they closed all these churches right after the Spotlight series in the Boston Globe exposed what became an international scandal. And it, it was just another blow. So you're not helping recruitment matters by closing churches in addition to um, already disillusioning many people because of what they learned from the past. Sometimes there are, there are financial necessities, like I, I said earlier, thir 30 churches in, in my family's home region, the greater Hazelston area, that, that was too many years ago, but they need to be uh, more attuned to the consequences of how they carry out these closures if they are unavoidable. Let me read another paragraph here. Shortly before the Baltimore meeting, Pennsylvania dioceses announced plans to compensate victims through, quote, reconciliation and reparation funds. In Philadelphia, the archdiocese will place no cap on these payouts. Five New York dioceses carried out a similar initiative, paying out over $200 million, an average sum of $200,000 to more than 1,000 victims. Financial compensation, this is the important point. Financial compensation, however, does not address the incompetence and arrogance of many bishops. Among the attendees of the Baltimore meeting, for instance, was Scranton's retired Bishop James Tinlin. Timlin. After the grand jury report detailed Timlin's outrageously incompetent leadership, he was banned from representing the diocese. Yet this did not stop him from attending a conference intended to discuss better stewardship. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the kind of thing that can, can turn, turn your parishioners pretty cynical. And the grand jury report in Pennsylvania documented extensively um, really how out of touch and oftentimes how often he, he covered for abusive priests about Bishop Timlin. And that, you know, and, and Hazelton is part of the Scranton Diocese. So that's, um, I, I, you know, I, I really learned so much and observed what was going on there. And it was actually the bit. So, Timlin didn't really carry out church closures. He had retired by the early 2000s. It was his successor, Bishop Martino, who came in and really wiped out the diocese, carried out these mass closures that I would argue the region, um, the, the, the anthropocentric region of Northeast PA, has not really recovered from. And it was that insensitivity at a time when people were already attuned to what was going on in the church that only um, made matters worse. Now, you, you say that the bond of trust has been broken. Do you find the laity uh, acquiring a spirit of, of activism, of independent activism? Is, is that spirit spreading? I mean, you, you mentioned the mass mobs. We see that happening there. Is this, is this a growing thing? And I mean, what, what, what are you going to see five years from now? with Rust Belt Catholicism. Well, yeah, I think that's an important point. We need to distinguish um, disillusionment with the institution from uh, faith in the religion. I think many of these people who are not going to Mass are still very spiritual, believing Catholics. They, they still have crucifixes in their homes, statues of the Blessed Mother. They're, they are praying the Rosary, praying to saints, they're just not going to church. So they are Catholics, but they aren't going to Mass. And I, if we're talking about five years from now, unfortunately, I think we're not going to stop 
the um, decrease in in parish roles in many of these cities, because the other factor we have to consider is population loss and demographic change. Yeah. Um, in, in Hazleton, for example, it's a majority Latino population, uh, Dominican based, but Dominicans are often not Catholic. So, you know, they're Pentecostal, they're evangelical. But, um, but, you know, in a lot of these communities, the demographic changes are impacting um, the number of Catholics who are attending the remaining parishes because many are not Catholic. So um, as the Rust Belt undergoes this demographic and economic social change, I think um, we're just going to see more and more people who, yes, say they're Catholic, but are not necessarily going to Mass. Were the mass mobs, mass mass mobs, popular especially with the young? So in my interviews with um, the people organizing these mass mobs, they, they're they're popular among all ages and even non-Catholics, because even if you're non-Catholic, when you move to these neighborhoods or have some kind of tie to these communities. They're the defining feature of these uh, towns of the urban landscape, and I think people are just devastated to s- when they learn that a church may be closed or even demolished uh, for you know too often for a parking lot. That um, they're willing to participate in these mass mobs, go to the mass, and give money to save their local church. And that even applies to the diaspora of these communities, people who no longer live there. So you may live in a suburb, go to a separate Catholic church, practice, go to mass. But when your family, your home family parish where you were baptized or um, where your your family received all the sacraments, uh, you will find a way to support it regardless of your position on um, the institution. So I think people are learning to... Uh, separate the institution from the faith, but people are so angry at the institution, I don't know if it's going to result in a revival of parish roles. I think it just will result in maybe as many, if not more people long-term, let's say the next five years, who may participate in actions like the mass mobs or get involved as laity to save these parishes, to help raise money, to save the structure but even they may not even uh, be going to mass. It's just the uh, commitment to their their hometown culture and these edifices that define their lives. Uh, last question, Charles. Did John Paul, Pope John Paul, figure highly in the thinking of Rust Belt Catholics? And does Pope Francis figure as highly? And if he does... Is there a general opinion of Francis among Rust Belt Catholics today? Well, I, I think people um, aren't even thinking about Pope Francis. I, I think they're they're more worried about the state of affairs and their. It's community. very local. It's so local. I think there was um, an affection for Pope John Paul at the time. I think his record perhaps is more mixed now among many people in these communities, but even. I mean, the one grocery store um, outside of Hazleton, when you, you go to the grocery store, there's actually a portrait of Pope John Paul when you in the checkout line. And in the hardware section, 
um, when you go to the the hardware aisle, there are there's actually a, a small section with that sells rosaries, holy cards, uh, just really it's like a mini Catholic shop. But that 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 encapsulates many parts of the Rust Belt. They're still so Catholic despite everything that has happened, and they want to preserve that culture. But as just a sign of times in this age we live in. Yeah, their hearts keep getting broken. So their hearts are broken by um, this, really the the spiritual and, and the profane. Their, their hearts are broken by the ill-advised decisions of local, uh, regional, and national elected officials. And their hearts were broken by the one institution that they turned to for spiritual nourishment, which was the Catholic Church. But in spite of everything, they're 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 trying to practice to find comfort in their faith, but too often it's hard for them to even continue going to mass. Charles McElwee, thank you for joining us. Thank you.